Well, good morning, everybody. That was, um, that was beautiful. Thank you, Anissa. Um, good morning. We are in Mark chapter 14, so you can turn there in your Bibles if you have them. Um, if you are a guest with us, welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, we are Bedrock Church. Uh, our, our aim is to honor Christ in everything that we do. Um, and one of the ways that he calls us to do that primarily is through proclaiming his word and, and making disciples. So we aim for that. Um, well, the weather's turning a little bit and looking forward to more warmer weather this week. Um, we had a little bit of a cold spell there uh, and we fought through it. We made it. Good job, guys. Um, we, uh, we're going to be, again, um, Mark 14, verse 12 through 25. If you, if you don't have a Bible, we have them available for you at the ends of the aisles. Um, and you probably have a Bible you can turn on on your phone, too. So that's always an option. Um, if you're in the Bibles that are on the end of the aisle, the, the page is going to be page 496. Page 496. Um, so let's start here. There's a table in the middle of our service this morning. Um, and we are going to get to it. I'm hoping that today the Lord uses this in a unique way. But before we get here, um, last week, last week we had, um, we had a story, and we were in a small house in a small town outside of the city of, Je- of Jerusalem in a city called Bethlehem, um, in a city called Bethany. Uh, it was, and it was in the most unlikely of places and from the most unlikely of sources that we see one of the most beautiful acts of worship in the entire story of the gospel. Um, you have this woman that walks into a room and she has a jar. Um, and she breaks this jar and there's this expensive, costly oil inside of it. And she pours it over the head of Christ. Um, and it says in the book of John that the entire house was filled with the fragrance. And at the moment she breaks the jar, what we realized was that she immediately becomes poor because of the cost that she gave for this moment. But at the same time, it's almost as though it was never about the cost for her. She'd begun to treasure something different in her heart. She began to treasure Christ. And one of the things that we see is like, if you were to just freeze frame this moment, it's what I was thinking about this week. It's like, if you were to just freeze frame that moment, you have all throughout this story, Jesus is rejected. Jesus is um, he is accused, he's attacked, um, but almost, it's almost just like if you were to just pause right there as she's pouring this oil over the head of Christ, it's like for a single moment he's treated how he should be. He is worshipped and treasured. And it's like, and I was like, is it not the most heavenly moment that Jesus has ever experienced on earth? That this woman were to walk in the room and just give honor. Um, and... I think um, one of the things that we see is that she's also not the only one in the room. Um, the other disciples were in the room, and the disciples, uh, they've been wrestling with who Jesus was throughout the story. And so as this woman walks in the room and she pours this oil over the head of Christ, you see this beautiful response from Jesus where he actually says what she's done is a beautiful thing, but at the same time, you see criticism just come out of the disciples not all of them, but it says some of them. There was this criticism that immediately, immediately rose to the surface. They responded to worship with judgment. And so out of that, you have this transition. You have this transition from one table um, where Jesus is reclining at a table to another table. And this table is special. 
Um, so let's, let's read our passage. Mark chapter 14, um, 12 through 25. I don't think we're going to read the whole thing initially. Let's read through 16. It says this. It says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And as he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into this city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he um, had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Let me pray. Lord, would you teach us this morning? Um, we're so much to learn. Um, Lord, if there's any preconceived ideas that we have about this moment, Lord, would you be just give us the grace to just, um, Lord, to remove that and help us see your word. Um, help us, the only thing that would remain would be the things that are true and the things that are good. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us today. Show us who you are. You've given us a table. Um, and this table is of great significance. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be able to enter into this upper room now. Um, Lord, that you would help us to see um, exactly what your purpose was in, show, in giving us the wine and giving us the bread. Um, Lord, would you soften our hearts? Would your spirit, um, would you teach us as only he can? In your name, amen. Um, so at the beginning of the book, we saw healings. At the beginning of the book, we saw miracles. We saw um, the calling of the disciples. Um, we, Mark uses Peter's conversation. And at the, at the heart of it is that kind of the middle of the book is there's this question, right? And we've said this over and over again. Does anybody know what is the question um, that is at the heart of the book of Mark? Just throwing it out there. Anybody? Jesus asked this question to Peter. Who is he? Yeah. Who do you say that? I don't know who said that. Um, who do you say that I am? Right. Nice. We're learning things. Um, Jesus has this question. It goes all the way up until chapter 8. In the heart of chapter 8, there's a conversation between Jesus and Peter. And Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds with this incredible statement, you are the Christ, which means the Messiah. And Jesus, it says that he immediately begins to teach what that means. Because Peter, even though he's able to say it, he doesn't fully understand. What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? And it means that he's going to suffer. It means that he's going to be rejected. It means he's going to die. And it's almost like these three things in Jesus' mouth are on repeat from this point forward. He says it over and over again. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die. He says it exactly three times. And, and then you begin to realize that the death of Jesus is, is as we've kind of studied, we realize that um, the death of Jesus is not just his destination at the end of the book. The death of Jesus is the primary lesson on discipleship that Jesus is teaching his disciples in the world. That is what he's teaching them. So as we go through all of him feeding the masses, calming the storm, healing the lame, giving sight to the blind, teaching the disciples, confronting the proud, comforting the rejected, ultimately all of this points to one thing. 
Discipleship to Jesus is learning what the death and resurrection means about him, and in turn, what it means for us. Which means that if you want to grow as a disciple, my argument from the book of Mark, from what I see here, is not that Jesus taught them just how to live life. If you want to grow as a disciple, you learn how the death and the resurrection of Jesus bears its weight on every part of your life. Everything. Not just the end, but the stress that you feel now, the anxiety that you feel now, the pressure you feel now, the decisions you're trying to make, the direction that you're going, what the disciples ultimately learn as the death and the resurrection changes who they are, changes everything. So, ultimately, at the heart of that question of who do you say that I am, is, is this act of, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to die. And the question that kind of rises to the surface from there is, why does Jesus have to die? I don't know that you've asked that, if maybe you've asked that question yourself. Um, you're like, okay, could there have been another way? I'm mean, to be honest, um, Jesus almost asked this question in the garden. Lord, is there another way? Um, but this question of why is it death? Why does Jesus have to die? And we... Um, Man, he really only directly answers this question one time when he says he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, right? As a ransom for many. A ransom being something that is a, a cost that is paid in exchange for something, for a prisoner. Someone being set free. And so he says, my life in and itself is a ransom. It's something that's setting many free. Um, and... Jesus does something that only he can, as the wonderful teacher that he is. Um, instead of giving us a long sermon to answer the question, why? Why does Jesus have to die? What he does is he gives us a meal. Um, so this is, this is the scene. Um, he gives us this meal. And let's start here, just so that we can get some um, kind of like some mental hooks as we walk through this. The first thing that we're going to see is that the table is a reminder that God is our rescuer. The table is a reminder that God is our rescuer. Um, all right, so the first thing that we want to do is to look at what the Passover was. Um, the Passover meal, uh, it is a feast, right? Um, and it was a feast that was meant to recognize a moment in history for the people of Israel. It was this moment that was not just a moment for them. It was the moment that changed and, and, like, and essentially inaugurated who they are. Um, it was, to them, a, a new beginning. It was the exodus out of Egypt and into the wilderness and ultimately the promised land. Um, but instead of giving them a lesson, he gives them food. And I personally love that he gives them food because I like food. Food makes everything better. Um, it, uh, yeah, I mean, it makes everything better. So say you're going to hang out with someone and you're like, hey, I want to go get pizza first. Yes, I want to do that always. Hey, do you want to go to the park? Yeah, should we get coffee? Absolutely. Food makes everything better. Um, but it also, it serves a unique role in, in our society because... Um, it's something that we all have in common, not just in common with each other right now, and I think we're desperate for things that we have in common. 
Um, but food is something that not just like people right now, but people from the beginning of time. Like we need food. We need to eat. There needs to be something that provides some kind of sustenance for us. And so it is something that we all enjoy. Um, and we enjoy it differently. Sometimes we have fast food. Sometimes we have, um, I guess it would be fast food. Sometimes we have casual dining. And in the middle, you have fast casual. We've completely reshaped the food scope. Um, but the best way to enjoy it is to enjoy it with friends. And honestly, the best way to enjoy it is to enjoy it with people that have made it. Um, and so the first thing that I thought about was Alejandro. Alejandro made for us um, Easter lunch this year. Uh, and it was a blessing. And one of the reasons, I think I have a picture of it. He doesn't probably know that I took this picture. There he is. Um, one of the reasons that it was such a blessing for us was because um, this conversation began probably three weeks ago, um, where we began to talk about, man, what do you want to, like, let's, let's, let's eat together. And then it turned into let's eat with more people. And then we, just, then we went to Sam's Club. No, we went to Costco, and we got way too much food. But for him, it wasn't even enough. He was ready to cook a feast. And so we show up, and what he's making is a food that is near and dear to him. Um, and you could feel it. Uh, you could feel it in the way that it was prepared. You could feel it in the way that it tastes. And you realize that food has the capability to do something completely unique, where when you share something that you have grown up with, a food that is near to you, that you've prepared with some of your closest friends, it's almost like you're sharing a piece of yourself. Um, and it's a blessing. Uh, and so on Easter, we all get to enjoy this. They were the best tacos. <laughs> I don't know if I've had tacos. They're the best tacos I've ever had. Um, and I, I think as we take a step back from that and we look at the table, we're like, well, then of course. Of course Jesus chose the table. Of, of course he chose food. But if one of the reasons that I love Philadelphia is that there is many kinds of people and there's many kinds of good food. And so the culture that we're looking at right here, um, man, this would have been Jewish culture, the time of Christ, the people of Israel, and they had food of their own. And they had rhythms to their life. And one of the things that was just a regular thing for them was prayer and Sabbath. But one of the things that also was were these feasts. There were, there were times that they would come together and they would eat. And none was bigger than the Passover, the week of unleavened bread. This meal at the beginning for an entire week, this was what they called a pilgrimage feast. So you would leave where you were and you would come to the city of Jerusalem and one of the things that I love, as I looked up, I was like, all right, so how many people actually would come to the city of Jerusalem? I said at the time, there was around 250,000 Jewish families in Josephus. It says this in the Wall Street Journal. They wrote an article about, about it, um, I think it was a couple years ago. It said, Josephus, a Jewish historian cont um, contemporary with the Gospels, Gospel authors, writes that on Passover, the population of Jerusalem swelled to more than Two million as Jews made pilgrimages to the temple for the annual celebration of Israel's liberation from slavery in Egypt. Two million people. I don't know if that's what you had in mind. But that, is, that reshapes how you see this scene. Because let's, let's reread our passage. All right, Mark chapter 14, verse, starting to verse 12. It says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover. Now that question makes more sense now because the city's packed, 
right? There's people everywhere. And as he sat, two of his disciples, um, uh, he said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. (laughs) He was just like, everything's inconspicuous. It's like you're trying to get someone through a city, right? He's like, all right, there's a man. You're going to see this man is carrying a jar of water. My first thought is there's got to be a lot of men carrying a jar of water. But there's a man carrying a jar of water. Um, He will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, it's almost like don't say anything to him. Just follow him, right? So once once he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? Don't use my name. (laughs) The teacher says, um, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples, and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out in the city. See, what you see is with two million people packed into this, this is a crazy scene as Jesus navigates through the crowds to find the upper room. Um, I think um, you arrive, and one of the things that can happen, I don't know what your experience with communion um, is, but um, this is not, this is probably not a traditional experience today. Um, But for them, it was the Passover. And so this is very appropriate. Um, It was a meal. And so they would come and they would sit down at a table. Um, This table's way too high. They would have been reclining at a table. Uh, And for us, there would have been certain things at the table that were just there. Um, and so for us, we think about Thanksgiving meal. At Thanksgiving meal, there's like, I don't know, there's, all, there's like sweet potatoes, and there's mashed potatoes, and there's gravy, and there's ham. Um, and there's that cranberry thing that looks like the jar it came out of, which is now is odd, you know. But it's there, and, and you're just like, these are the things that are on the Thanksgiving table. And there's a turkey. There has to be a turkey, right? Um, and here, you're, you come to this table and you realize, man, this is a feast. This is a feast that meant something. It was more than just a meal. It was a meal that had a purpose. And so everything that is on the table has its purpose, right? Um, and so as you look at this table, there's a, there's a lot of things. Um, but none of them, see, one of the things that I just began to look it up. All right, so what would have been at the table? Um, olives would have likely been at the table. Jerusalem had fabulous olives. Um, and beans would have probably been at the table. They said there would have been likely dates at the table. There would have been lamb at the table. The lamb would have been the, the centerpiece. Um, but the, three, the two pieces that Jesus uses is the bread, which would have been unleavened bread, um, and there's the wine. Um, but what, another crucial piece is um, this right here, which is horseradish. Um, but for them, um, it was bitter herbs. So I want to walk through these three things. First, we have the bread. And all I want to do before we go into what Jesus did with this table, I first want to understand what did it mean for them? Like when we go into the room, what were, what were the disciples thinking? This is a familiar table for them. So when, they, when we go into the room with the disciples, this is a table that they know really well. Every year they sit down to this table from the time that they were kids. They've asked questions about the things that are on the table um, and and they, so they're familiar with the bread. So the first thing they would have done is that, that the, the host would have said a prayer, um, and then they would have taken the bread, and they would, have just, they would have split it up, and they would have just began to pass it around. And people would have just begun to eat. Um, and this bread for them holds significance, and what they would have known is that this bread is unleavened 
which Rachel can tell us all about this. Um, but the reason that it's flat is because an unleavened bread lacks yeast, right? Um, and so it doesn't have time to rise. And because it doesn't have time to rise, it's flat. Um, which for them takes them all the way back, takes them all the way back to their ancestors. As they were in Egypt, there was, um, there was an urgency to the exit that had to take place. Um, so in Exodus 12, we're going to be all over Exodus 12. Exodus 12, 39 says, And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. I think one of my favorite descriptions is the way that they would eat the lamb. It says that they had to roast the lamb and that they had to eat it all and that if there's anything that wasn't consumed, that it had to be um, done away with. Um, and it says this is how they should eat the lamb. And Exodus 12:11 says, In this manner you should eat it, with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So there was this sense of like, all right, so the Passover, the Passover is coming, which we're going to learn more about that. But what it does mean for us is that we need to be ready. Have you ever had to catch a flight at like five in the morning? You know, it's, it's terrible. It's mean you got to get there like, like two hours beforehand. And so you're just like, you're up and you hardly even sleep. But when you do go to sleep, the bag's already packed and like socks on, you know, like you're like ready to go. Because when you wake up, like it's time to go. And so there's not going to be time to dilly-dally. There's not going to be time to add stuff. And that's the sense that you get here with, like, Jesus is, I mean, or God is telling his people, like, hey, be ready because the Passover is coming. The next thing that we have on the table is the bitter herbs. So these bitter herbs, I'm not going to take a bite. I don't know. It's just horseradish. It's like, it's not even the sauce. It's just, like, granulated. It would be intense. But the reason that, it, that they would eat this, this is what a Jewish, traditional Jewish table would have. And they actually probably would have mixed it with beets so it would be red. Um, and what this represents is slavery. This represents the time that they had in Egypt. Um, and it, it's, it's meant, like, there's supposed to be a tear that comes to your eye as you eat it. Is your wise water? You ever eat wasabi? And it's just like, you know? Like, and that's meant because you're supposed to remember the time that you spent that your people spent in Egypt. And that time is, um, man, the best way that it's, it's depicted is that there was, what it begins with is Pharaoh. As the people enter into Egypt, they're a small people in number. There's just not a lot of them, but they begin to multiply. And as they multiply, Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, begins to feel um, that he needs to do something about it. And so what he does is he, um, is he says the first the first, um, the, the male of every, I don't even think he said the male. He actually just said an entire, a man of every generation is going to be thrown into the Nile River. And so this slavery begins with just bloodshed. Um, and then these people are enslaved for years. And so this represents a time of just mourning um, for the people of Israel. And then the last, which we don't have on the table, would have been the most important, which is the lamb. Um, it would have been a lamb that was sacrificed. Um, and they were instructed to take a lamb and to um, slit its throat and take the blood and put the, put the blood on the doorpost so that 
um, as there was, um, as the Lord goes through the city of Egypt, that the people um, that have the blood on the doorpost, that he would pass over their homes. Um, and the death that the Lord was bringing in order to set the people of Israel free would be something that whoever had the blood on that doorpost, their, their family would not endure. Um, and so what it represents is death. It represents a sacrifice that was made. And I think as a father um, who has an oldest child, um, and I would be so grateful for the blood. Um, that there would be, I, just to think that um, that kind of destruction and mourning would be brought into the city of Egypt um, and to have this way out, to have this um, sacrifice that could be made and what would happen is that there would be um, a way to life for the people that made that sacrifice. Um, and so for them, that is what this table meant. Um, so this table was something that was practiced every single year, and in Exodus 12, 14, it says, this is how it should be treated. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever, and you shall keep it as a feast. And then in Exodus 25 through 27, it says, and when you had come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this sacrifice. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? So this is like he's acknowledging your kids are going to ask about this. And when your kids ask about this, you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he has passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but, but spared our houses. Um, one of the, what this table represents to the people of Israel is that their God um, is a rescuer. Their God delivers. Um, the second thing that we're going to see in our passage is that the table is a proclamation that Jesus is our sacrifice. The table is a proclamation that Jesus is our sacrifice. All right, so if we looked at what the, what the Passover was, let's look at what the Passover is. What does Jesus do with this table? Um, so verse 17 says, And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table, eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful, even to say to him, uh, say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is the one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Um, so Jesus drops uh, this statement. Now imagine, like, again, Thanksgiving dinner. Have you ever had someone say something odd at Thanksgiving dinner, and you're just like, whoa. <laughs> um, when they just move on. Uh, I don't know that Jesus said something odd, but it definitely was alarming. Um, like, this is something that no one had ever said this when they sat down at this table before. And so Jesus sits down, and this is what he has to say. Um, and he says, there's one of you is going to betray me. And they immediately begin to say, well, like, one at a time, is it me? And in Matthew, it says they begin to discuss it among each other. Um, and we have a clear depiction in, in John where Jesus has this interaction with Judas himself. But one of the things that's evident is that 
because this table was something like, this is not just like a pass the bread moment, even though that's how often we feel. This is like people are dipping, things are moving. It's Thanksgiving, right? Have you ever Thanksgiving, like with like some of your closest friends, right? And it's just friends and family, like it's kind of chaos. And so he says, it's the one that dipped into the, into the jar with me. And, and there's a moment in John where you get a clear interaction between Jesus and Judas. But one of the things that is definitely there is there's some ambiguity for the disciples, like, there doesn't seem to be a clear picture. Even in, even in John, when Judas stands up and leaves the room, I don't think they fully understood what that meant. But Jesus and Judas knew exactly what was going on. So Jesus explains this to Judas, and Judas hears and understands, and he leaves the room. And we don't see that in Mark, but you see it in John. Um, and I think what happens after is that Jesus begins to reshape what this is. So verse 22 says, And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So the meal continues. Jesus prays a blessing over the bread. Do you remember the purpose of the bread? Remember the purpose of the bread? The purpose of the bread is that bread for them at that moment, um, even though it was hurried, even though it looked like this, bread was life. That is what it was. They needed it to, they needed it to move. They needed it to, to move forward. And there was a rushness to it, but bread for them was life. And so what Jesus does is he takes the bread, and this is when he begins to pass it, and he passes it to all of them, and they eat it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Um, so it's broken. And I, I think one of the things that he is trying to, for us, we, we have a different perspective, but for the disciples, within eight hours, Jesus is going to be arrested. Within 24 hours, there's going to be blood everywhere. And the disciples are going to be asking this question, why? Like, why does Jesus have to die? And what he's doing right now is he's explaining to them, this is my body. It's going to be broken. This body that you see right now and is with you right now is no longer, it's going to be broken. He said, take this. So what they do is they consume it and he says, eat it. And what this means for them is that the broken body of Jesus Christ, what he's doing, he's saying the broken body of Jesus Christ, when consumed, gives life. That is what it does. The first thing that I thought about was a conversation. Now you just, it's almost like you're reminiscing, like you're thinking about all the conversations that Jesus has already had. You know, you're just like, man, Jesus has done so much. He's fed so many people. He's talked about bread before. And the the way, the depiction that I love is in John where um, there was, there was, Jesus is feeding the 5,000 people and he's giving them bread and they come back to him for more bread. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread, was it not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And in that moment, I don't know that they fully understood that what he meant was his own body. Um, And he goes on and he says in verse 40, he says, For it is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have 
eternal life. Jesus is constantly drawing these comparisons between us believing and consuming his, himself being the bread and life being the result. And so he gives this to his disciples, and it's a clear depiction of what he's come to do. Maybe the most popular verse of all time is John 3.16. says, God loved the world and he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This idea of believing and consuming Christ and then having life. The next thing that he does is that he takes the wine. Um, and he says to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. For many. Um, do you remember what the wine represented? Remember the wine, what it represented in, for, for, the, um, for the Jewish people and for the disciples right now? This wine represented death. This is, this is the blood and the lamb um, that represented death and it represented sacrifice. Um, and so what Jesus is doing is he's taking this cup and he's saying, this right here is my blood. Um, and again, there's coming a time soon where Jesus' blood is going to be spread everywhere. Just like there was blood spread with the lentils on the homes of the people that the, house, that the Lord passed over, the blood of Jesus, the lamb, is going to be spread everywhere. And that blood, he says, is his new covenant. Um, and so what you see is this beautiful picture where Jesus is saying, this represents a time for you that God delivers and he rescues. And he's saying there's a new promise coming. And what that means is there's also a new people as a result of this. So if we've been given this covenant and that God has been faithful to rescue your people and the people of God to this point, the promise from Abraham from the beginning was that through Abraham, the world would be blessed. And it's almost like you get this moment where the covenant of Abraham has fully matured and now we're at the table and the God who made that covenant is sitting at the table with his disciples and he's saying it's happening. There is going to be a sacrifice and this sacrifice is going to take the sacrifice that was made all throughout the Old Testament with Abraham and his people and this is going to be a final sacrifice and there's going to be bloodshed and as a result of that there's going to be an open door. There is going to be a door that is opened that is going to be for many. It is going to be for all people. Um, this is not a new idea. I think um, there's so many prophets that spoke about this, but I think Jeremiah speaks about it most clearly, that, the God, spe that God speaks through Jeremiah. So if you look at Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, this is what it says. This is through the prophet Jeremiah. This is what God says. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Look at the difference. Look at the comparison between the new covenant and, and the covenant that was made as they came out of Egypt. He's when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. He's saying this was going to be different. This is my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer 
shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. He says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. It's in that moment that you're reminded that the reason for this table, the whole reason for this table that has to exist is because sin exists. The reason for the slavery in Egypt is because the world is broken. The reason for the sin of the people of Israel is because they're imperfect and sin continues to grow and sin leads to death. And ultimately that death, that so much death and bloodshed throughout the entire story of the Old Testament, but all of it builds up to this final moment where there's one. There's one that sheds his blood and that there is a final death. And what that, what that does is that gives us access from the least to the greatest. That there would be no distinction that all people, that many would be able to go to the Lord and that they would know him. And the reason that they know him is because this table has been made available to them. Because there's a sacrifice that has been made. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what this table means. Um, we're going to observe this table together. Um, and I think there needs to be a moment before we, I don't, I, there needs to be a moment before we partake in this where we just pause um, and you rest with what, we made our way from Bethany into Jerusalem. We made our way through the crowds. We found the man with the jar. We made our way up to, the, up to the room. And in the room, we see this table. There's a feast happening. And Jesus takes this and completely recreates it. And he makes it available to his disciples, but ultimately he makes it perfectly available to us because not only was there death and sacrifice, but there was a resurrection. And if there is a resurrection, then this table means far more. Um, the final thing that Jesus says as he's there with his disciples in verse um, 25, he says, Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Matthew says it this way. He says, I tell you, I will not drink of the, again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is using this table. What this does, this table points back. This, this table is reshaped in the present. And this table points forward. There is a promise. The last point, like if you were to leave with something as a follower of Jesus Christ who gets to participate in this, the last thing that we see about the table is the table assures us that this meal is not our last. That there is a day that we are, what we're promised is there is a day where not just um, the penalty of sin is gone, but the very presence of it, that sin is no more, and that we are in the presence of, of the Lord, and all that's left is a feast to be enjoyed 
where sorrow is no more, where mourning is no more, where everything that feels like it's wrong with the, with the world has been complete, completely set right. And you again, are t- you take of the food, and he's saying that table is real. A table is coming. Um, and so I think as we, as we take this table together, uh, one of the, someone that was helpful in this as I studied was, um, have you ever heard of the Bible Project, a guy named Tim Mackey? Um, and he, um, he says this about the Lord's table. He says, the point isn't that you just get the understanding of Jesus' meal. The point is that this is something that Jesus wanted us to keep participating in. Every generation sees itself as a generation that comes out of Egypt now every generation of his followers see themselves as the people who were, set, who were sitting with Jesus at the final meal. Jesus doesn't just want us to understand what he did for us. He wants us to participate in it. Um, and so we are given a table. Um, you're going to eat at many tables in your lifetime. I pray that there are, a lot of them are surrounded with friends and family. But this is the one that has been prepared by Christ. Um, and so I think what I want to do here at the end, as Haney's come up um, and we just give some space, I'm going to leave this right here. Normally we have it set to the side, but we're going to take communion together. If you want to participate in the bitter herbs, um, I'm not going to stop you. Uh, but So if you come back crying, I'll either say, the Lord's doing something in your heart or you ate some bitter herbs. Um, maybe both. Um, and I, I think we're just, I just want to give some time to reflect, some time to acknowledge. Maybe as you think about this table, you think about what the Lord has done in your life. Um, just as the, the disciples would have been thinking about the history of Israel, maybe you're thinking about your own history. Like, what has the Lord done in your life? And what does this table mean for you? What is the sacrifice, the bread and the wine, um, his body and his blood? What does that mean for us? Uh, and I would, I would encourage you just to, to pause. We rush so much in our culture um, that you would linger um, and that you would wait and you wouldn't rush. Um, but when you feel ready, that you would come up and participate. Paul um, says a lot of things, but one of the things that he talks about is um, the sacrifice that Jesus made, what it did for us. So in Colossians, he says, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So just as Egypt is brought out of slavery, and they see freedom and redemption, and God is the one who brought it, we look to Christ. We see that he's delivered us from a dominion of darkness. He's transferred us into a kingdom that is his own, and there is redemption. There's forgiveness of sins. Paul talks about how we should practice this table, and he reaccounts everything that took place on this night in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying this, cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim 
the Lord's death until he comes. This table is a proclamation for us. And because it's a proclamation, I think he also gives a warning. He says, one, don't rush to the table. Um, be patient and consider, is there anything that needs to be confessed before you come up here before the Lord? And two, that this table is something that is meant for followers of Jesus Christ. Um, because the first step towards this table is for you not to just consume something with your body, but to consume something with your heart. That is where this begins. That we would first participate in the sacrifice that was made for us, um, and then as a result of that, that we would come to the table and enjoy it together. So, um, let me just open us in prayer, and we're going to give some time. And as you feel led, come on up and take part in the bread um, and the wine. Let me pray. Father, you, um, you know that you know us, and you know that we need to be reminded. Um, Lord, we need, to, we need symbols. Um, all throughout Scripture, we see you gift us these symbols, um, and they're meant for remembrance. That as we look upon them and as we, as we partake in them, that we would be reminded that you are our Redeemer, you are our Rescuer, you are the sacrifice that was made, and because of that, we also remember that this is not our home, um, and that there will be another meal one day. So Lord, I pray that, um, man, so often we come to you and we just, we want you to do stuff for us. Lord, let us not come to this table that way. Um, Lord, I pray that you would sift our hearts right now, Lord, and that you would remove anything that is not of you, and that we would come to this table humbled, that we would come to this table in gratitude, Lord, that we would come to this table um, knowing that we, because of this table, are fully yours. We don't need anything. All we really need is you. Um, so, Lord, um, we participate with joy um, right now in who you are. It's your table. Thank you for setting it. In your name.